hey, I'd like to introduce someone whose voice you've heard on the show before, and that is Chad. And we have a fantastic little YouTube raffle for you. Chad, what's it all about? Yes, we have an exciting opportunity coming up for you to be able to win a free ticket to meet the Masters coming up in March or a $500 travel allowance. Here's what you need to do to be able to win one of those things. We'll be selecting a winner on March 4th when the contest ends. And all you have to do is go to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate. Subscribe if you haven't already. Then pick any video to watch. There's a variety of categories, everything about real estate investing from finding the right markets, analyzing real estate deals, the economics of real estate investing, property management, financing. There's a whole wide range of videos that you can choose from and choose one that you think would be interesting to you. Watch it and then go to the comments section and comment just a quick one sentence comment on something that you learned from that video and make sure to include the hashtag JHLive in the comment and that will enter you into this raffle. Okay, so that's real easy. You just go to youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate, subscribe to the channel, and then watch any video you like and make a comment below the video of one thing you learned, include the hashtag JHLive, and that will enter you in the raffle to win a free ticket to meet the masters or a $500 travel allowance. This ends on March 4th, so be sure to get it done before March 4th. We look forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters. Thanks for joining us, Chad. Thanks. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is your host, Jason Hartman, episode number 664, 664. And I am glad you're here with me today because we are doing something we have never done. Never, ever. This is the first time. There's always a first time for everything, right? And uh, this is one of those times. It's really not that big a deal. <laughs> But we do Flashback Friday, as you know, you regular listeners, and our Flashback Friday was a fascinating interview, if I don't say so myself. I was not the guest, so I was only the interviewer. I was interviewing G. Edward Griffin from Creating Wealth episode 291 on Flashback Friday, and our episode today is a brand new, just recorded, hot off the press, literally recorded about four days ago, interview with none other than G. Edward Griffin. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying we've never done. We've never done back-to-back -back like that. And of course, he is the uh, very famous, well-known author of the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Fascinating look at money, freedom, conspiracy theories, the Federal Reserve, the banking cartel, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, all of these institutions that control our lives in so many ways that we literally don't even notice them. In, in talking about that, think of it from this perspective. Think of the perspective of content 
in our lives, all the stuff we see and we're familiar with, and we usually spend time rearranging. We're always rearranging the content of our lives, right? Let's get some new stuff, a new car, a new house, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new husband, a new wife. (laughs) You know, we're rearranging things, right? We're always rearranging stuff. Some people rearrange a little too often, admittedly, but we always have this stuff where we're rearranging the content of our lives. And we really notice the content. The content is very apparent to all of us. But there is another thing that plays a much bigger role in our lives. And that is the context, the context, the environment, the overriding theme, the backdrop of our lives, out of which everything comes. Remember, it's that that, that concept of the chicken and the egg. What came first? I bet you don't know. I'm about to tell you. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't know either. (laughs) So what came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. And none of us know, probably. But here's the thing. With context and content, we know that context generates content. So why am I talking about this when we talk about monetary policy, when we talk about deflation, inflation, stagnation, the economy in general, the marketplace, the supposedly, which it it isn't much true anymore, the supposedly free market, ha ha, jokes on us, the market is not very free, but it should be. So we have this context, and the context is like the air we breathe. Unless we live in Beijing or Mexico City or Cairo. I remember when I went to Cairo, I got so sick from the the Cairo, Egypt, of course. I got so sick from the smog, like the air. You could literally see the air. It was so bad. I went to go see the pyramids and stuff, and it was just really, really polluted, okay? And so... The air in which we live, the environment in which we live, that is the context of our lives. And we don't really usually notice it unless it's really polluted. (laughs) And fish, you know, they live in a context too, right? What context do fish live in? Well, that would be water. But do they notice the water? I don't know. We don't know, okay? In fact, there was interesting, a little little aside, tangent alert here, a little aside. They did a study uh, recently, you know, who knows how they do these studies, but they, whoever they is, don't you love that they, right? Well, some scientist, ostensibly, scientist, did a study, I was reading about it, that said the average person nowadays has the attention span of a goldfish. That's um, scary. And I will admit, I am one of those because my attention span has declined quite a bit in the uh, new world. I used to just sort of sit down and read stuff, read a book, read a magazine, whatever. Now it's like, well, I'll read for a little bit. I'll have to check my email. Oh, what's going on on social media? Uh, I think I need a drink of water. You know, <laughs> it's like too many distractions nowadays, right? Well, I used to need a drink of water either way. But so context and content. Understand that the banking cartel, the Federal Reserve being the largest member or participant or really the leading, uh, the leader of the banking cartel, the Federal Reserve, which is about as federal as Federal Express, we don't really notice it. You know, most people don't even know what it is. Fortunately, of course, all of you do because you're well-informed listeners, right? You, you, You study this stuff, you listen to it, you hear me talk about it, but it influences everything. Think about it from a a smaller scale even. Think about Fannie Mae, the Federal National Mortgage Association. Is that what that stands for? Yeah, can't even remember. I used to know. Or the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. Gosh, wow, it's that's amazing, you know? You take these acronyms for granted after a while, you don't even remember what they stand for. NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Association. Okay, we got it. So context and content. 
when we're investing in real estate out there in the marketplace, we sort of take the secondary mortgage market, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, we take these these organizations that really provide a lot of the context in which we invest because they influence prices, they influence rental rates, they influence uh, obviously financing availability and, and the, the amount we pay for financing and all of this stuff. So that's part of the context, right? Even things like Zillow, things like certain books, uh, certain themes, certain types of education out there influence the context, the environment in which we play, the playing field. So it's very important to always think about context versus content. And everybody notices the content. Few people notice the context. And when we talk about the central banking cartel, that is a huge part of the context of our lives in so many ways. It influences our wealth, our savings, our, our you know, God forbid, hopefully we don't own any stocks. We're just real estate investors. But the price of stocks, real estate, precious metals, every, everything, the cost of a new car, the cost of a television set, everything, the price of oil, the price of other forms of energy, it's just omnipresent, right? So this is very important stuff. Now, we'll stop talking about it after today for a while, but we've got our Venture Alliance Mastermind trip to Jekyll Island coming up in just a couple of weeks here. Well, I guess it's about 10 days away. Looks something like that. It's going to be a great time if you're interested in taking your entrepreneurship and real estate career and really becoming a real estate entrepreneur of sorts. To the next level, check out VentureAllianceMastermind.com, VentureAllianceMastermind.com, and you can join us as a one-time thing as a guest on historic Jekyll Island, where the Federal Reserve was founded. And so this uh, additional new, brand new conversation with G. Edward Griffin, who's really the the foremost thinker and, and author on this subject, I think you'll find it to be fascinating, but it also influences another huge context, and that is the context of freedom, because your resources are really nothing more than your time and talents, right? So we all go out into the world, we contribute our time and our talents, and we get something back for it. We call that money, it's really just currency. And there's a difference between money and currency. Money having intrinsic value, currency being a symbol of that intrinsic value, not really the value. Currency is like a derivative. You know, my definition of the derivative is the thing about the thing, right? And that's really what currency is. That's what dollars are, euros are, yen, yuan, reals, pesos, any currency on earth. Those are all currency. It's just a symbol. It's a derivative. It's not the thing. It's the thing about the thing. And so... The value of this thing about the thing that we're all chasing after, the almighty dollar, as they say, is constantly fluctuating because of this fake, man-made, artificial context in which we must live. And before we get to our interview, I just want to say the most important thing that has been the theme of my investment education for you over the last 12 or 13 years, and on this show for the last 10 years, what is that theme? The theme is align your interest as an investor. Align your interest with the most powerful forces the human race has ever known. Remember, you're listening to Flashback Friday. Our new episodes are published every Monday and Wednesday. Central banks and governments. Align your interests with them. Fools try to fight them. Fools who are eating refried beans in the woods, stocking up for uh, anarchy and civil unrest and societal collapse... They refuse to align their interests with these incredibly powerful entities. Now listen, I'm not saying I like it. I don't like it. I think philosophically it's disgusting. 
But you know the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. So <laughs> there you go. Align your interests with them. Understand and be critical of them, for sure. But in, at the end of the day, this investment philosophy that I've been teaching you is about an alignment of interest. You're not jumping into part of the scam that, they, that they're perpetrating on humanity, but you're just aligning your interest with what they're going to do, most likely. And you know what that is. We've talked about it on the last 600 and, what, 63 episodes, right? So let's jump over to our interview with G. Edward Griffin. Check out Property Investments at jasonhartman.com. Join us for our Ohio Property Tour coming up soon. jasonhartman.com in the events section, early bird pricing for our Ohio Creating Wealth Seminar and Property Tour. And, of course, as I mentioned VentureAllianceMastermind.com for the Jekyll Island trip, the Mastermind Weekend. All right, here we go. Let's welcome G. Edward Griffin back to the show and hear more about money and freedom. It's my pleasure to welcome G. Edward Griffin back to the show. He's been on twice before. He is the author of the seminal work, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. You probably know his name by now. He is just such a prolific guy and, and really has has this, the, the seminal work on this topic. He's founder and president of American Media Reality Zone, also founder of Freedom Force International. G. Edward Griffin, welcome back. How are you? Uh, well, thanks for inviting me, and I'm very well today. Thank you. It's good to have you back on the show, and you're coming to us from Westlake Village, California? Yep, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, we are uh, we are taking a trip uh, for my Venture Alliance Mastermind group to Jekyll Island. It's coming right up, and uh, we're so excited about that. And I thought um, in this interview, uh, of course, we want to talk about the updated version of the book. You've updated this book so many times. It's such a fantastic profile of the Federal Reserve and the banking cartel and what it means to us in, in, in the future. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about the place itself, because we're about to go there. Where do you want to start? Maybe just give a little quick overview on the Federal Reserve, what it is, what it's not, uh, (laughs) and then we'll take it from there. How's that sound? Well, that's good. Uh, You can start almost any place on this topic, and it doesn't make any difference which way you head out. Uh, You're going to cover some very interesting uh, landscape. But I suppose Jekyll Island itself is is a good place to start this time, because... uh, it's, uh, of course, the, included in the title of my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And since um, you have a lot of your uh, friends and uh, listeners who are going with you to Jekyll Island, I don't have to explain that it's a real island. But, you know, a lot of people think it's a fictitious place um, because I've attached the word creature to it. So I guess they, they, have the, they conjure up this image of, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon or then, of course, Jekyll conjures up the thought of, um, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde and all these things. And I have to confess that I deliberately did that in concocting the title because I wanted to get people's attention. <laughs> but the, the main fact is, that, and the important fact is, that uh, Jekyll Island is a real island and it's off the coast of Georgia. And the significance of it is that that is the place where the Federal Reserve System was actually conceived. And that's an interesting fact in itself when you think about it, that here's something that most people think is a government agency, and it's not, and we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later, but it's certainly a very important institution in the United States. It's the institution that um, controls our money supply and interest rates and, and, and the velocity of money and the economy to a large extent. And so it's, it's a very important institution. And instead of being created under the spotlight of uh, uh, political observations in Washington, D.C., and, you know, um, pros and cons and debates on the floor of Congress and committees and all that sort of thing, it was done at a highly secret meeting well, over there off the coast of Georgia on Jekyll Island. And uh, that is a is an intriguing fact. In fact, that is the fact that caught my attention when I first started 
down this research path many, many years ago, I, I, I noticed that uh, all of the information that was available, whether it came from friend or foe, um, was uh, in agreement that indeed the Federal Reserve was conceived on Jekyll Island and that it was a secret meeting. So I thought, well, that's uh, interesting. Why? First of all, why would it be there? instead of in Washington, and why would it be secret, you know? Because it occurred to me even then that it, when people do things in secret, there's usually something to hide. And so my curiosity was picked, and I tried to find out what it was that they wanted to hide. And I found out, and that's the reason I wrote the book, is to explain what it was that they were hiding and what impact that has had throughout history. And certainly what impact it has on us today. Uh, but now, Jekyll Island itself, in those days, uh, was privately owned uh, by a small group of um, millionaires. So today we would call them billionaires or trillionaires. But in those days, in 1910, when this all happened, uh, to be a millionaire was the equivalent of being a billionaire today. And it was owned by a small group of those fellows, people like J.P. Morgan and William And I must just... I must just insert the irony of that is that one of its mandates was to control inflation. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that's just so ironic, that comment, you know? Yeah, the, the mandates of the uh, or alleged mandates of the uh, Federal Reserve um, come to that, you know. They say they are supposed to do one thing, but when you analyze who they are and what they are, you realize that that is mostly for show, that their real objectives and their Real goals are quite different, and fighting inflation is not one of them. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, the, so the island back in 1910 was owned by a small group of very wealthy people, but people like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller and their business associates, and it was a, it was a resort island, and it's where their families came to spend the cold winter months to get out of New York and New Jersey and to go down there to the balmy shores of Georgia. And they had built a, a magnificent clubhouse there. Um, it's still standing, by the way, very nicely restored. As, as uh, you'll see, I, I guess your meeting is going to be held there. And it's a magnificent structure. It's a, it's a great example. It's beautiful. It oh, really yeah. is. Yeah. It's an example of the architecture of the time, opulent architecture. It's all wood and uh, nicely carved and lots of filigrees and decorations and and you know, towers and spirals and things like that is beautiful. But then uh, the families themselves had um, built their own, they called them cottages uh, in that area. That's a funny word for them because when you see them, they're quite large mansions, each one. But to them, they were cottages. And many of those have been restored too. And I enjoy taking a trip around the island. They have a tour and you can visit several of those um, cottages. And it's very interesting to see how the super wealthy lived in those days. And in those days to have a bathroom was considered to be a big event. And some of these had more than one bathroom. I remember the one I was in, I think they had five or six bathrooms. Well, you can imagine that's like having uh, five or six airplane hangers today, you know. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great place to visit because of the history and lots of interesting photographs. And uh, certainly one of the highlights of any trip there is to visit the um, uh, the uh, little library and gift shop and bookshop. And uh, I'm, I'm advisedly saying that now because I'm going to be promoting my own book. Uh, one of our uh, one of our customers sent me a letter uh, about uh, I guess nine months ago with a photograph. He had visited this uh, bookshop, the the uh, gift shop there in Jekyll Island, and lo and behold. Right as you walk in the door, there's my book sitting up there on a shelf. The most um, prominent um, sales space in the whole store is loaded up with uh, with my book and uh, and recordings on the creature from Jekyll Island. And I've been told that that is one of their best sellers there in the uh, in the gift shop, which is just it tickles me pink because <clears throat> my story is not a very um, it's uh, not flattering. It's, not it's very, very flattering. critical. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has nothing negative about Jekyll Island, but not very flattering about the people there. So anyway, uh, that's just a little aside. It's a, it's a nice place to visit, and I, I'm sure you and your guests will have a great time 
uh, enjoying that that history. Now, in those days, the island was not connected to the mainland. You had to take a ferry boat to get across it, which these guys did when they visited the island. They took a train uh, from New Jersey. It was a two two nights and a day train trip south, and um, when they got to uh, Brunswick, Georgia, they had to get off the train, and, and then they were taken down to the um, inland strait there where there was a ferry boat that took them over to the island. Now you can just drive right across a nice big broad bridge, and if you're not paying attention, you're not even aware that you're going over water. But uh, anyway, all that's a, a very uh, secondary. The, uh, the main thing is what happened there. These, these fellows uh, that, uh, who actually were the top bankers in the United States representing the biggest investment houses of the world, you know, you know, like Kuhn Loban Company. And we got the, the Morgan Bank and the insurance um, a group that was owned by Morgan and the Rockefeller Group, you know, city, uh, the main bank, the biggest banks in the, in the world, really, or maybe second only to the Bank of London, uh, were all uh, represented at this meeting. And uh, the purpose of the meeting was to draft the... Uh, the terms, the outline uh, of what became the Federal Reserve Act. And um, as you just said a moment ago, it was advertised partly to control inflation, although inflation in those days was not a big factor because there hadn't been a lot of it. Um, in fact, it was very stable currency because up until that time, um, real money was backed by gold and silver, and in many cases it was gold and silver. A lot of transactions were uh, uh, conducted in the real bullion itself and in coins. Um, and the, the dollars themselves were supposed to be backed by gold and silver, although we found out in uh, later years that there was a lot of uh, criminality in the banking system. And um, even though... Imagine that. Yeah, imagine, <laughs> imagine that. that. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that they weren't backed by gold or silver. And that's the reason that there were bank runs because when people got uh, whiff of the uh, of the smell that their money wasn't really in the bank that it had been multiplied, lent out and multiplied, and uh, and claims made against it far in excess of the units that were behind it, and they began to think, well, m you know, maybe my money isn't secure, and they went to ask for their money. Well, all of a sudden, that was what we call a bank run, and people lined up to get their money out, and the first uh, five percent got their money and the rest uh, were greeted by a closed door and uh, so that was the real banking crisis of the era the the bankruptcy of the banks state banks primarily and so there was great hue and cry in congress to pass legislation to reform banking to stop that kind of thing it wasn't inflation that was destroying uh, the economy it was the failure of the banks to deliver on their promises to their depositors that was the problem, and the banks were folding, closing their doors. People were losing their savings and so forth. And, and what what year? Give a context for that. That what year? Well, you the meeting that to? we're talking about took place in November of two thousand and ten. Oh yeah, the yeah. the creation meeting, right? Yeah, yeah, the creation meeting. Now the the Federal Reserve Act was passed in uh, December of two thousand and thirteen. And you mean nineteen hundred, right? I actually that I did say two thousand and well, there you go. Thank you for correcting me. Of course, yeah, nineteen ten and nineteen thirteen, um, and uh, that was the three year period that was essential to promote the concept, not only to Congress but to the voters, because it had to be presented uh, as, a, as a very popular item, something that was good for America, good for business, good for the economy. And above all, it was presented as something to control those big, bad bankers, you see. And what the reason for this secrecy turns out to be, that had anybody known that this bill to control the big, bad bankers was actually drafted by the big, bad bankers, why then the cat would have been out of the bag and nobody would have fallen for the trick. And uh, the, the Federal Reserve Act would not have been passed. So that was the reason, basically, for the secrecy, is to conceal the fact 
that the bankers themselves were drafting the legislation to control their own industry. And in the process of that, when you sort of back off of the historical facts and look at the landscape in general, you realize that what they were doing is creating a cartel. And it was no different than a banana cartel, an oil cartel, sugar cartel, whatever. This just happened to be a banking cartel. And this this one, I would argue, and I, I'd love to see if you agree with this, sorry to interrupt, but is this the biggest scam in the history of the world? I mean, it may be. This affects almost everybody on the planet in, in, in terms of the value of their money of their currency. Uh, it's just, this is, this is huge. I, I mean, the, the scope of this is monumental. Yes, there's no argument on that. Uh, and I would, I would be tempted to say it is the biggest scam, but you know, one has to be a little cautious on that. If you think for a moment of history, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps wars are the biggest scam. I don't know. <laughs> You know, um, and then but, but who are they financed by? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Central well, banks. How are, how are the wars financed? It's all kind of a can of worms at a certain point. But I certainly agree with you. This is, as uh, as our friends in the political arena say, this is huge. <laughs> it's really huge. Yeah, because money is at the at the center of every human, just about every human transaction. And when you realize that the way the system now is set up. The money is created by the banking system itself, which is not so bad. It, that fact alone is not really the, the slammer here because the money could be created by the banking system. And if it were backed by gold or silver or something of tangible value that would absolutely prevent human intervention, uh, or willful intervention, just political intervention, to create money out of nothing. In other words, if money had to be created out of human effort so that money would pace everything else in the world, goods and services that also are created out of human effort, then it's an even playing field and money would hold its relative value throughout long periods of time. There would be no inflation. There'd be no loss of purchasing power. Uh, and uh, there are long periods of history that prove that point when money was in fact gold or silver or backed by gold or silver there was no inflation there couldn't be because the money itself was limited um, by the degree to which humans were willing to create it by digging it out of the ground and refining it and that took human effort just like uh, human effort was required to 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 make a suit or to brew a cup of coffee or anything else you might want to buy with that money. Right. And so that's an important thesis. I just want to make sure the listeners really get that. Because supply is limited and the effort is great to mine something, that by by virtue of that, it gives the currency that that is related to it, it makes it true money because it, it gives it a real intrinsic value versus what we have now when it can be created out of thin air, you can constantly debase the value of that currency and make everybody on the planet poorer and poorer by fiat, just by a decision that Janet Yellen makes. I, I mean, it's 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 really mind-boggling. <laughs> it is mind-boggling, yeah. And where I was going with that long discourse is is that the, the reason this is such a huge topic, as we agree, is that since money is at the center of every human transaction, almost every human transaction, uh, money is constantly moving or potentially being reserved to be moved to to balance the uh, the ledger on everything we do. Um, well, this telephone call right now is involving a transfer of financial credits um, between you and me and the telephone company and, and indirectly through all the people that service the lines and you know all of the, the manufacturers of the telephone and the wires and so forth. It, it involves a transfer of money. And if the money is created by the banking system and all of it is based on debt, now we're getting to the real interesting part, all of the money in the world today is based on debt, not on gold or silver, which is based on value. It's based on debt. In other words, it comes into being only when someone borrows it. It doesn't exist before then. And so they have to borrow it from the banks. So all of the money in the world is 
created by being lent as a, a loan by some bank. It is so hard for people to get their head around it. It took me really, yeah. literally, at it, it took me years to get my head around that idea. And to be very honest, I still don't know if I understand that. I mean, I understand fractional reserve banking or fractional reserve lending. It's referred to both ways. But the the idea that money is lent into existence, it's sort of like you can maybe understand that intellectually at some point, but uh, sort of grappling with the impact of that and what that really means is... Uh, it's it's profound. It's very profound, and especially when you realize that it's it's ethically highly questionable, and that's the understatement of the century. <laughs> it it and to my mind, it is a scam. It's a it's something that was has developed over the centuries as a very elegant scam, and uh, that's one of the reasons. Uh, People have trouble getting their heads around it, as I did, too, because I kept l expecting it to make sense. And I, so suddenly I realized at one point, hey, this doesn't, doesn't make sense in terms of my morality or in the morality of most people who you know, want things to be fair and just and honest. But if you suddenly switch the morality and say, now I'm a con artist, now does it make sense? And all of a sudden the light went on. Now it makes sense, of course. That is exactly what it is. This whole thing is dreamed up by con artists and polished over and painted over and decorated to make it look like it's a very, you know, very sober, secure banking system, you know, and, <laughs> 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 but it's a scam. And the reason it's a scam is because the money is lent into existence uh, with no effort, real effort in terms of producing anything except producing numbers. Now, it's true you do have to have employees and buildings and desks and typewriters and computers and all that sort of thing, but it's relatively low cost of production compared to digging something out of the ground and grinding it up and extracting the precious metals out of it and so forth. It's, it's no, no comparison at all. And so it's, you might say it's practically free to create this money and lend it into existence, but the kicker is now you, it's not that you use, use the money for your own purposes. You lend it for other purposes, and that could be good. In fact, that is good. People often need to be able to borrow money in order to engage in business enterprises and so forth. Um, but now you're collecting interest on what? You're collecting interest on nothing. Now, there is the scam. That's see? a great deal. I would love to do that deal. Can sign, I do that deal? Yeah, sign me up, you know. <laughs> well, sign trouble me is, up, too. Trouble is we're about uh, 300 years too late. The, the <laughs> Rothschilds figured that out. Yeah. yeah, they figured it out, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we're just <laughs> trying to get our heads right today, and it's been going on for centuries. You see. So anyway, that's, as I said earlier, no matter which way you go on this topic, you're running into some very interesting terrain, and that just happens to be one of it. What is that quote by one of the Rothschild families? Uh, Let me control the money, and I care not who makes the laws, or something like that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it's, it. It's yeah. much more powerful. You know, it really is. It's, it, well, if yeah. think, of, think about that. If you control the money, you can buy the politicians. Right. But and they do. Not, and they do. That it's as simple as that. The politicians are are bought like so many pounds of hamburger, and uh, you know they. I, I issued a one of my more popular editorials just two weeks ago, and the headline was "Con Artists Make the Best Politicians," and. You know, it's a harsh thing to say and all of that, but I really b believe when you look at the political scene, especially today, the major politicians on the stage, you look at them, they're con artists. Oh, every, yeah. every one of them. Of course. Yeah, yeah. of course. I, I don't think you'll get too much argument on that. Can I fire a few quick questions at you? Uh, I, there's so much ground we could cover. I just want to. I just want to get a couple of things out there and see what you think of them. But did did you kind of wrap up to some extent what you were saying? Yeah, sure. Well, it, you know, with this topic, you never wrap it up. You just sort of roll it over. You're right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so you wrote The Creature, the original version of The Creature from Jekyll Island back in the 90s. Just any thoughts on how they're playing out today with Janet Yellen and the Obama administration and just kind of a general, you know, maybe a comment on that? Well, everything is unfolding exactly as it 
was predicted as I predicted it. And, it, and sometimes people say, gee, how, how come you're so smart that you were able to make these amazing predictions? I have a chapter toward the end of the book called The Pessimistic Scenario. And uh, it, it was followed by a realistic scenario, which was not nearly as, as bad. But the realistic scenario was what I thought we ought to be working toward because we can get out of this mess. But the pessimistic scenario is where people just are are dumped into the morass and they do, know nothing about it. Don't know under, they don't understand it. They don't know how to get out of the problem, and so it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's the pessimistic scenario, and um, and so I, I I played it out like it was actually happening, like uh, you know, like a novelist would describe. Oh, at three thirty the lights went on and on the computer, and the automatic buzzer went off, and so the president of the bank got up to see what was going on. Told it like a little story was actually happening, and to make it interesting, and it's just amazing. People say, "Well, how did you know that's what happened last last week, or that's what happened last year, and so forth?" And they think I'm a genius. Well, none none of the above. I just uh, just know what was going on. You know, it's easy to predict the future if you understand uh, two things. If you know where you are now. Well, that's not so easy. A lot of people have no idea where they are now. Well, that's actually my next question about yeah. that. But go yeah. ahead. Yeah. yeah. And then the other point you need on the on the graph is where you came from. Where were you? Well, a lot of people have no idea about that either. They don't know about the history of money or the history of our system or anything. They have no. They have no, they have no two points at all. So they're totally lost. But if you understand where we came from, you understand you know where we were, where we are today, then all you got to do is lay a little mental ruler between those two points, and you can draw a line and project it into the future, and you can say very confidently that unless there are some major changes in the forces, uh, we're going to continue heading in exactly the same direction we've been traveling. And there have been no changes in the forces. In fact, it's just been the same forces getting more and more powerful. The people that created the problem in the first place are the very ones who we are now turning to to solve the problem. Right. It's, it's so yeah. ironic. It, it just it, you, Ironic, yeah. You, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you yeah. couldn't make fiction like this. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it was easy to, to see what the future looks like. And so, yeah, everything is unfolding exactly as I was afraid it would. And... Um, I mean, what can I say beyond that? Uh, if anybody just reads the, that chapter, they can see that this was easily f foretold. Uh, well, the book was published in uh, 1994, but that part of the book was written, I think, or developed at least in my notes about 1992 or 1991. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just a reminder, you're listening to Flashback Friday. Our new episodes are published every Monday and every Wednesday. I want to wrap up with that optimistic scenario and pessimistic scenario that's pretty much history now. It's already happened. But maybe you have you touch on the optimistic one. But let me just fire off a couple quick questions for you. And it alluded really to your last comment of people not knowing where they are. You know, when when you're look at fish exist in water, yet they I would assert that they don't notice the water. Okay, we exist in air, yet unless we live in a really polluted place, we don't notice the air, hopefully, right? It's just something, it's just the context, it's our environment, you know, we don't notice it, right? And this is especially bothersome. And I'm, look at, I'm a Gen Xer, okay, so I don't even have really that much historical context myself. But I, I try to be a student of history. And it is so frustrating to me when I talk to Generation Y, when I talk to the millennial generation, and they just, they just don't get it. I suppose every generation feels this way about the generation, what one step removed from them, or maybe two steps removed from them. But they just don't know where they really are. They don't understand, seemingly. And I'm, I'm sure there are many things I don't understand either that baby boomers would say to me that I don't get. But what does it really mean to be free? What does freedom mean? Because you you write a lot and talk a lot about this. People just, they, they just kind of don't know where they are, right? They don't, they don't, 
really understand that they they are not free, are they? Yeah, that's a great topic. Um, in fact, it's it's the one that occupies most of my time of late. Uh, as I think I mentioned to you before the program, uh, I'm living and breathing an organization that I created uh, a few years ago called Freedom Force International, and that is really the the central focus of our of our um, efforts is to create a better awareness of what does it mean to be free what is it how do we how do we defend freedom do we just go out in the battlefield and and uh, kill somebody is, is that what it is because somebody's trying to take away our freedom or do we have to defend it in our schools in our textbooks in our halls our legislative halls you know do we have to defend it in debate do we have to understand it and of course you can tell by the way i'm asking those questions that that's how i think the answers are freedom is something we have to understand before we can really defend it because history has been loaded with examples that people have rise up against some great tyrant and a great cost in treasure and blood they'll overthrow the tyrant because they hate him he's a tyrant and first thing you know the guy that replaces him turns out to be no different if not worse because they didn't understand what makes a tyrant they think that a tyrant is just a bad person and they don't realize it's a system tyranny is an outgrowth of a system of the concept of what is the proper function of the state what should the state be allowed to do and what should it not be allowed to do those are issues that are not taught in school and they're not not even discussed in philosophy classes or political science classes well the the, the whole the whole agenda of school is controlled by especially now by uh, i call it communist core <laughs> instead of common core <laughs> well yeah and it's, yeah, it's, it's not a bad word except you know one of the things we uh, try and make very clear in Freedom Force is that all of these words like communism and fascism and Nazism and socialism and, uh, and some of the so-called opposites like capitalism and uh, you know we got all these words flight floating around there and very few people can define them and you even look them up in the dictionary and there's a lot of contradictory definitions and I discovered a long time ago that you have to peel off those labels and look underneath at the ideology and when you do that you find that in the western world at least there are only two ideologies only two and they're clearly defined and the rest of them are just garbage the words don't mean anything and the two ideologies on the one side were those words that we just mentioned fascism communism nazism so forth those are merely variants of one concept which is called collectivism they're all all of these isms that we've talked about believe the same thing it's collectivism and now they get a different flag and a different uniform or they come from a different nation and we call it something very special like you know nazism or communism communism came from russia nazism came from germany and so forth and so but there what's the difference between nazism and communism i defy anybody to to find a, a significant difference between the two because there isn't any uh, i mean i've studied the works of Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Hitler. I mean, I've, I could probably, you know, pretend like I was a true believer and make it sound pretty authentic because I studied this stuff when I was younger. I was, what are these guys up to? Why is this so appealing? And I made the most amazing discovery a long time ago that they're all the same, basically. They all believe, have this, one of the principles. There are eight of them, and I was able to identify major ones. One of them, for example, is that they all believe that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number now that's fundamental to all forms of collectivism of finding communism and they make that idea sound so noble it sounds too. so noble i was taught that in school i was taught that in an american school and i bought into it. I thought it sounded so good. It wasn't until later years I began to read and understand deeper issues that I, I saw through the facade. Talk about a con artist promoting an idea. That is one of the top. Well, just briefly, just tell us in like a sentence, what is that? What did you see? What did, why is that a facade? Why is that idea faulty? As if I didn't know, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Oh, boy. I don't know how much time we have, but here we go. Well, uh, <laughs> we've got as much as yeah, you need. <laughs> yeah, the idea, the idea that the group is more important than the individuals is based on an assumption. And the assumption is that there is such a thing as a group. There isn't, 
there is no such thing as a group, okay? The word group is an abstraction in the mind. It doesn't exist. You cannot touch a group. You cannot see a group. You can only touch and see individuals. And group, this word group is a mathematical abstraction in the mind. It doesn't really exist. It's like the word forest. There's no such thing as a forest. There are only trees. Right, right. And you, can, you can't cut down a forest, but you can cut down trees. And so when you say that the group, which doesn't really exist, has rights that are superior to individuals, which uh, do exist. They're the only thing that exists. You've made a huge blunder. And if we set in motion a concept in which some leader is going to step forth and say, I represent the people. I represent <laughs> the, the leader group. represents themselves. Yeah. That's who they represent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, see, there you have it. The, the Nazi party, the Communist Party, what are they? They are the representatives of the group. And there's always a great leader at the head of that party. And the leader always is the one who's living in uh, absolute luxury and of who's course. enriched and has yeah, power. And, and, and he, yeah. can, he can execute anybody he wishes. It's absolute tyranny, of just like from a thousand years ago, you know? Yeah, Except absolutely. it's all polished over with these phrases like, you know, the greater good for the greater number. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, take, take a lynch mob, for example. Now, this is sort of wrapped up in the word democracy the greater good for the greater number, that's, you know, majority vote and so forth. Take a lynch mob. Well, there's only one dissenting vote. The one who's being lynched, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's at the end of the rope. So what's wrong, if, you, if, if it's for the greater good of the greater number, and if democracy is, is a great concept, and that the majority should always rule, then what's wrong with the lynch mob? Right, absolutely. Yeah, very good point. I, Ed, Ed, I love the way you said that. I also love the way Ayn Rand said it when she said in one of her essays, she said, there is no such thing as group rights. There are only individual rights. The smallest minority in the world is the individual. And you, you, that, like you said, it's an abstraction. The, the group does not exist. There are just a bunch of people, you know, when people clamor about, oh, well, we got to have Hispanic rights or African-American rights or rights for overweight people or rights for uh, males and females. And yeah, everybody's entitled to an individual right, regardless of their ethnic origin, race, religion, nationality. Everybody is entitled to an individual right. And it should be the same as everyone else. Not different. Right. Yep. Yeah. Very good. As simple as that. Well, th these are the things, uh, these are some of the things that distinguish individualism from uh, collectivism. And so we have to start with an understanding of what freedom is. Freedom comes from, <clears throat> all right, now we're talking about individual rights. Freedom comes when the individual, you and, and I, are protected by the state, protected against the passion and greed of the group mm. yeah of right. the majority then once the majority can vote anything it wants can vote take your money away can vote to put you in prison can vote to make you conform to a certain code of ethics or uh, whatever to make you pay for someone else's college or health care once, <laughs> once you let the majority have the power over you as an individual simply because it's supposedly in the greater for the interest of the greater good you've you've had it brother you're through you're your slave. You are. Yeah. It's it's amazing that people think that other people should be enslaved, literally, quite literally, at the point of a gun. If you do not pay your taxes, someone will at some point visit you with a gun and say, you either put these handcuffs on and come off to prison where you will be spend your life in a cage or we will shoot you with a gun. That's literally what happens in the United States of America. How do people not understand that idea? That that is well, that 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 happens that happens in every country in the world which has adopted the ideology of collectivism. And that means it happens in every country in the world, period, because they all at this point in history have bought into this concept, the greater good for the greater majority, you know, the greater number and all that sort of thing. 
you know, there are, as I said, there are eight important characteristics. This, we're just talking about one of them now. But all of the world's uh, nations have bought into that today, and that's the problem. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, this is one of the points where Mao Zedong was absolutely right. No, I'm not endorsing Mao Zedong. He's one of my all-time uh, uh, bad guys, as far as I can see, because he's an advocate of collectivism. You, you have to love his branding and marketing. It's the cultural revolution. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but he said, and correctly, I believe, he said, all political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Of course it does, yeah. Of course it does, and you may hate it. But it's true. That's the way it is. So uh, let's face reality. Once you give the state uh, the authority to do something, you're actually saying, okay, the people working for the state now have the, the authority to carry guns and to shoot others if they don't comply with what they want. That's the understanding. That's political power. It grows out of the barrel of a gun. And once you pass a law in the legislature, then people must follow that law or they're going to be facing the open end of a barrel of a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. That's it. Okay. Yeah. What else did you want to say? Do you want to highlight one or two of those other principles, the eight? Well, let's just start with the top one on the list, uh, and not necessarily the most important one, but I think it's extremely important, and that is the origin of rights, human rights. Where do they come from? An important question. Well, the, the collectivist believes that human rights are granted by the state. You get them from the state. You get them from other people who have been elected to office or who have assumed office because of the, they had a superior army. Anyway, the state, however it got to be the state, grants you your rights. They believe that. And the problem with that is that the state can grant you your rights. It can also take them away, which they always do. I mean, and so this is the basis of collectivism, that the state grants you rights. You'll find that in Soviet, the old Soviet constitution. You'll find it in the, in the Chinese constitution, communist constitution. You'll find it in all the communist countries. You'll find it in Nazi, would have found it in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, rights come from the state. You find it at the United Nations. They have a, a document called the Draft uh, Covenant on Human Rights. It says there in very plain language, in the issuance of the following rights, which are issued by the state, and it's just right as plain as you can be. They come right out because they believe it. All right. And okay, the individualist, on the other hand, thinks that the rights are ingrained in the individual. They're, they're part of the individual. When you're born with them. Now, you might have to defend them. Of course, you have to defend them because, remember, political power comes out of the barrel of a gun. If you cannot defend your rights, you lose them. But you've, you're entitled to them because some people would say God gave them to you. Others would say, well, you were just born with them because it's an intrinsic right. However you want to describe it, the, in, the individualist believes that rights are hardware. They're not software. They come with you. They're not added to you. So it's an important distinction. And uh, which one you believe makes a tremendous difference in what kind of a society you're going to live in. It really does. Wow. That's, it's just really profound. We've gone much longer than we anticipated. You're, you're such an interesting guest always. Can we wrap this up with the optimistic scenario and, the, and maybe touching on the pessimistic scenario, which was a prediction but now is history? And any action steps, anything we can do about this would be great uh, if if there is anything <laughs> oh there always is something and there's plenty you know it's never too late to stand for freedom and this battle will be going on probably for as long as human life exists on this planet even if we should go down the tubes uh, in our present era there always will be this force for freedom that is it's a flame in all of us. It's fire in our bellies. And sometime in the future, there'll be a new, a new civilization springing up from the ashes, perhaps. I don't know, but it, it's the battle will be going on forever. So it's never you never give up. Uh, at least that's my view. I can summarize this, I think, but it, 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 perhaps it's even best that we're running short on time because <clears throat> it's easier to understand when you just condense it down into almost like a soundbite. We're rapidly losing our freedom right now, and uh, nothing has changed yet uh, in, to change the force of that direction. So I can predict that in the next, uh, <clears throat> probably the next 10 years at least, 
uh, we're going to continue going down, down, down because nothing is in place yet to reverse it. It's a locomotive coming down the track, and you just don't stop a locomotive and send it back the other way instantly. First, you have to slow it down, and then you have to turn it around or at least throw a lever and throw it into reverse. Then you have to gain momentum and get going backwards again. It doesn't happen at, like, it's not going to happen at the next election. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're, we're going in a bad direction. Now, the good thing is that there is a tremendous awakening going on at the grassroots level. I, I, oh, yeah, I, absolutely. When I first began to talk about these issues, uh, had some kind of a real substantial platform, was back in 1994. Well, there are very few people interested, everything, life was good, you know, oh, you're just some kind of a conspiracy theorist, uh, you're just, uh, the sky is calling, calling, you're just a chicken little, and so forth, a lot of name calling going on. Now everybody's interested, now they say, well, how much time do you think we have left, you know, questions like that. <laughs> so it's a whole different um, atmosphere out there. People know something is wrong. And so this is the first step to being able to change something. Now they're willing to listen and uh, begin to consider some of these issues. So that's very, very encouraging to me. So where that will lead, don't ask me what's going to happen in the meantime because I'm kind of pessimistic on the next 10 years, but where that leads, no matter what happens in the next 10 years, where that leads is very encouraging to me. It, me it means that uh, there will be, finally we'll come to that tipping point where it'll just be impossible, almost impossible. I have to always caution and condition my words, but nothing is impossible, you know, but almost impossible to keep this desire for freedom down. I think that the, there'll be a, a surge for freedom. And this time, if we do our job correctly, and we're not just saying go out and, and meet the bad guys and replace them with good guys, if we're talking about principles instead of personalities like we do now. I mean, when you look at the presidential campaign, nobody's asking these people what they believe. They just ask him, well, what would you do under these circumstances? And how do you answer his criticism and so forth? You know, it's kind of like a little show. Uh, once we get rid of that nonsense, once we get rid of thinking that political parties mean anything except um, ways of controlling us and start thinking in terms of principles, like we were talking a moment ago, you know, what is the group more important than the individual? Where do our rights come from? That kind of thing. Talking about principles, then at last we'll be ready to rebuild. And that is where I, that's the, the optimistic scenario that I see. The optimistic scenario comes to a point where we can change society, and we will. And part of that, of course, we started off talking about the Federal Reserve. Part of that is to return to a sound monetary system. And we can do that easily, just once we have a resolve to do that. What we have to understand that fiat money is not the solution. It's, it's, it's bad that bankers can create money out of nothing, but it's not any better if politicians can create money out of nothing either. There's a, there's a, I'd say it's a little better, but a little, it's, a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's three percent better. You're going to die yeah. anyway, but maybe you'll live three seconds longer. Uh, you know. Well, there you yeah. go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, once we get these principles clearly in mind, uh, then there's hope for the future, and that's what it all adds up to. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Give out your website and tell people where they can find out more about what you're doing now. Of course, the book is available. It's fantastic. But, you know, your work with Freedom Force and, and so forth, tell us where they can find that. Yeah, well, first I'll start with the uh, the um, commercial side where we we try and make some money. We have to sell things that keep going, you know, so we sell books and, and we sell recordings and, and DVDs. It's, uh, uh, we have about 100 different uh, educational uh, items there, and that's all found on realityzone.com. So if you want to really dig into the literature and, and uh, read some of the history and all of that, you'll find all of those things uh, at realityzone.com. Now, the think tank side of this, we have nothing to sell over here, and this is where I'm spending all my time, is freedomforceinternational.org. freedomforceinternational.org. That's where we get into the the ideology. That's where we get into the strategy. That's where we get into the concept of how can we work together? How can we reclaim control over our own system? How can we replace those collectivists who now are literally in just about every political office 
out there. How can we replace them with individualists who have no axe to grind except to restore freedom? And is there a strategy that can be done for that? If so, what is it? And, and how do we start? That's all found at uh, freedomforceinternational.org. Yeah, fantastic. Well, G. Edward Griffin, thank you so much for joining us again, third time on the show. And it's always fascinating to talk with you. Very interesting, very engaging. I cannot wait for our upcoming trip to Jekyll Island, the the place where it all happened. And I, I believe I mentioned to you last week that our meeting is taking place in the exact same conference room. They call it the Aldrich Federal Reserve Room. <laughs> so literally, if those walls could talk, right? Yeah, yeah they, and they do talk. They talk through my book. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you, over the fireplace in that room, you'll see a big composite photograph of the, of the men who uh, sat in there in 1910 and created the Federal Reserve. They got their pictures up there on the wall. Wow, wow, yeah, amazing stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for inviting me. I've never really thought of Jason as subversive, but I just found out that's what Wall Street considers him to be. Really? Now, how is that possible at all? Simple. Wall Street believes that real estate investors are dangerous to their schemes because the dirty truth about income property is that it actually works in real life. I know. I mean, how many people do you know, not including insiders, who created wealth with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Those options are for people who only want to pretend they're getting ahead. Stocks and other non-direct traded assets are a losing game for most people. The typical scenario is you make a little, you lose a little, and spin your wheels for decades. That's because the corporate crooks running the stock and bond investing game will always see to it that they win. This means, unless you're one of them, you will not win. And unluckily for Wall Street, Jason has a unique ability to make the everyday person understand investing the way it should be. He shows them a world where anything less than a 26% annual return is disappointing. Yep, and that's why Jason offers a one-book set on creating wealth that comes with 20 digital download audios. He shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. I like how he teaches you how to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And this set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered for only $197. To get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia Book 1, complete with over 20 hours of audio, go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month just like a banker, Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.